Do we even realize how many books in the Christian bookstore about bettering your own life? Since when did following Jesus ever better your own life? I got word of some friends who are missionaries that were in Egypt for a while. When they were in Egypt, a man approached them, and this is what he said. You American Christians have lied to me. I watch TV, and unfortunately the television represents American Christianity because anybody that names the name of Christ has something to do with how the reputation of Christianity is seen, whether they're corrupt or not. Unfortunately, there's many in the church that peddle the wrong gospel, as Paul warned about. And when that happens, what happens is people get this idea that that's what Christians are. America is the Christian nation. So what he said was this. He said, you Christians have lied to me. You told me that if I followed Jesus, I'd be prosperous and blessed and have so much money and have the best life ever. Well, I turned to Christ and my whole family got killed. My whole family was martyred. But I praise God that he showed me the true gospel, the one that's in the scriptures, the one that's in the gospels. And I want to challenge us on even another front. Our tendency is to read the epistles and think about food for thought, about what it means to live as a Christian, when those things were written to reprimand people that weren't lining up with what Jesus and the gospel said and what the book of Acts actually launched. The gospels were so simple, but not pragmatic. You couldn't sit down and go, hmm, that's a good thought, Jesus. How do I apply that? When Jesus said something, you went, oh my word, this is going to cost my whole life. This isn't about signing up for some ideology. This isn't about signing up for some club. This is life and death. This is everything or nothing. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scriptures speak of two avenues of which we know God. One's the fear of the Lord, and one's the cross. Did you know that? If you want to know the Lord, there's only two avenues which really are tied together in the same thing. It's the fear of the Lord that gives any knowledge or any wisdom. And it's the cross that reveals God's kind of wisdom. If you don't embrace the cross, like Paul says in Galatians, you think you're better than what you know to be yourself. But the cross shows our depravity, our depth of desperate need before God. How nothing that we know can apply us to actually pleasing God. Nothing that we know. So the fear of the Lord is this sudden contact with the uncreated God that causes us to go, He's God and I'm not. I want to do whatever I can to line up with what He desires. And the cross is that application. So the cross of Jesus... The mercy of God and the day of the Lord where we'll reckon our account of how we lived our life specifically in every detail are all tied into one reality. There's one reality, and that's God. There's one that's true, and that's God, and all men are liars. But when we turn to the cross, we receive the mercy of God. Suddenly, our entire life is consumed in that day when God's throne is before our face when we give an account for our life. So, the fear of the Lord, basically, in essence, is that reality of the day of the Lord that's coming, the judgment. The mercy of God is, in essence, the cross, where God has made a way for us to not suffer the wrath of God. So if we lack these realities operating vitally in our life, we live in the fear of man, 
to please man, and thus we're at man's mercy, or really lack of mercy. In other words, we're at man's opinions, and we're living before man and not before God. So the fear of the Lord and the mercy of God, hoping in His mercy, are tied to the cross. The cross connects the fear of the Lord and hoping in His mercy alone with the day of the Lord reality in our minds, that we're going to meet Him one day. In other words, dependence on God alone, not human progress or pragmatism. If it doesn't make sense, I can't apply it. That does not work in Christianity. You don't, it doesn't make sense until you apply it. That's the thing about Christianity. Take up your cross. That made a lot of sense, didn't it? Practically. So, taking up your cross is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about reputation. But prayer alone is what strengthens the great, gives you grace to take up your cross and follow in the steps of the Master until He returns as the King of Kings. In fact, the Christian and his reputation, like I said before, connects to the church at large and its reputation worldwide. Cultural relevance debilitates and cripples the church. The cross causes disruption and confusion only because it exposes our faulty foundations of how we live. The only thing we're to build in the church essentially is human lives by the cross. Edification happens when our depravity has been revealed. If we don't realize we need to entirely tear down, like Paul said in Galatians 2, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For I've been crucified with Christ. I was made to die to the law through the reality of what the law points in its ten cannon barrels at my head. I didn't keep it. I was made to die and be crucified, or I have nothing good in me and I'm just building again what I was supposed to destroy through coming to the cross. So, often it's been stated among believers, yes, the cross has been the missing part from the church. We need to get the cross back in the church. And what that ends up being is we need to preach the gospel to unbelievers in the church. That's not true. The only place that it speaks of what the church is in the Bible is believers, 1 Corinthians 14. If an unbeliever comes in and hears you prophesying, he'll fall down if the sin's exposed and say, God's among you. Or Acts chapter 2 and 4, it's all believers gathered together in one mind. No, the cross needs to get restored to Christianity because we think we're already in cap and gown. We think we're done. We think that the finished work of the cross is done with us. That's pride of the highest point. The cross speaks of how desperate we are to live a life like the Son of God who learned obedience through what He suffered and became for us the source of eternal salvation. And again, not that Jesus suffered for us so we don't have to suffer. No, 1 Peter 2 says we must follow in His steps. His steps led Him to the cross. The cross needs to be back in the church. Not a seven-word magic prayer at the altar for anybody that doesn't know Jesus. I don't find that in Scripture anywhere. And it troubles me because then we tell many people, you're saved, past tense. When the Bible only speaks of being saved and the process, and the only day that somebody's saved is when they enter the eternal kingdom in the end. It's a process. It's dynamic. It's not a static, loose transaction that's 
wooden and intellectual. It's a dynamic abiding in the one that you turn to, learning to pray, learning to carry the cross and stay with him wherever he goes and follow the lamb wherever he goes so that we have that testimony on that day when we see him face to face, that we followed him. So the church needs the confrontation, the offense of the cross to confront her lifestyle daily. Each choice intentionally conveyed through the cross. Don't put down your cross. That's the challenge. Don't put it down. Wherever you go, let it be known that there's a cross on your shoulder. That is scary, isn't it? But at least they have something to put you on when they want to kill you. Because that's what you're made for. At least they know what to do with you. And then you can enter the glory of the Lord. Don't speak that lightly. So Luke 9, 18 to 26. This is what I want to hammer out with you quickly. Luke 9, verse 18. Luke is an intriguing book, unlike the other gospel, in that he always mentions Jesus' prayer life in the baptism. Jesus was praying and the heavens were open. Jesus got away to pray as a lifestyle was mentioned twice in the Gospels. On the cross, he's praying for the people when he's dying. And here in Luke 9, when he asked people, who do you people of the crowd say that I am and who do you say that I am? Jesus was in the place of prayer. Check out Luke 9.18. Here's what he says. I'm going to read through down to verse 27. So it came about that while he was praying alone, notice this, the disciples were with him. So he's praying alone, but the disciples are with him. Talk about a lifestyle of being before an audience of one, the Son of God, the Son of Man, so alone with the Father that when he's actually with his disciples, he's still alone because he recognizes one, ultimately, who he's living before. So in the midst of that, Jesus brings up a question that we could say, if we were in his shoes, would we not be thinking, I hope they say something good? I hope their reputation in my, of me in their mind is good? I hope that they give me accolades? I hope that I feel good about what they say? Jesus says, while he's praying, he questioned them, his disciples, saying, who do the multitudes say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets of old that's risen again. They say this because in verse 7, Herod is speculating what's going on after Jesus sends out his disciples and they're raising the dead and healing the sick and preaching the gospel and driving out demons. And they're like, what is going on? And, and Herod says, I think John has risen, or the crowds were saying, John the Baptist rose from the dead. Or it's a prophet. Maybe it's Elijah, the apocalyptic prophet that's coming back to restore everything. Maybe Jeremiah rose from the dead. But surely it's not the Messiah. So he says, who do they say? And they said, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, the Messiah of God. He warned them, instructed them not to tell this to anyone saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and raised up the third day. He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. 
For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So here we have it. Jesus had just filled the multitude with bread, was going for a place of rest, prayer, and all these words were going around about his reputation. And his reputation that he embraced was the place of prayer, so much that when he's bringing up his own reputation as a man, though God, there's no hint of maliciousness. There's no hint of ulterior motives, of pride, of showing himself, or of guarding his reputation. Then he calls his disciples to proclaim who they see him to be, and he says, yes, I'm the Messiah. And in their mind, they're thinking, David, who's coming to reign forever now with power, he says, good, I'm glad you believe that. Guess what? You may not have bargained for this. Even the scribes who study the word don't know this. They search the scriptures and think they have life, but it's me they speak of. Guess what? They missed that Joseph was going to come before David and suffer as Joseph did. They missed that the Messiah would first suffer and die and then return as King David. They missed this. And he was trying to shape their thinking around the cross. But they were so out of it that they didn't even know that he was actually going to die. They didn't grasp it. Over and over it says it didn't sink into their ears. It didn't get through their thick skull that he was actually going to die first. So he's trying to tell them what kind of lifestyle they were going to have to live in order to be in the kingdom that was coming. So verse 18, prayer was where Jesus lived. He had a reputation of being with the Father. This is all he needed. In John's account of this, they say, he's the prophet when he gives him the bread. Let's make him king. What did Jesus do? He hid, slipped away, and went up to pray. Because he wasn't to be the king yet. He wasn't to reign. He retreated to the Father. Number two, Jesus questioned his own followers. Who did the crowd say that I am? Verse 19, they have a lot of speculations. We just went through all that, who he could have been, why they thought he might have been who he was. Anyone but the Messiah is what they were thinking. Not really his disciples. They kind of thought he was, but they didn't really know. But the crowds overall, and especially the religious people, thought, no, he's not the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. And you know how hard it is to break away from what leadership thinks, you know? When the scribes are thinking that, how many of the multitudes had a hard time just denying the, the lawyers, the, the status people, the theologians of the day? So Jesus was calling anyone to believe that he was the Messiah individually. Because verse 20 says, who do you say that I am? The Messiah. So in verse 21, he goes on with a warning. Don't tell anybody about this. What he didn't want was an easy believism that would delude people to not actually have a part in the kingdom of God. In other words, to believe, oh, he's the Messiah. Okay, it's time for the kingdom to come right now. And that whole line of thinking of the cap and gown already being on the, the church would begin. Thinking that he was coming to kick out Rome and give them their comfort and their good life now similar to the American gospel of my best life now, which is so much more 
confronting to all of us in this room than just the obvious book published by the prosperity-thinking kind of gospel people. It is something that we really have to consider daily. That's why Jesus said, daily, take up your cross. So here's the thing. He was calling individuals to inclusion in the kingdom, not easy believism, with personal benefits and fame now. The parody as the church is we think we've, the finished work of the cross is finished with us. That's our problem. We think it's finished with us. We think it's all past tense, but we still need to go through the cross every day. It's, all, it's even in the letters. That's what Paul was correcting in the Galatians. Don't move away from the cross. Don't put it down. Don't relax it. Don't add to the cross. It's all through the cross. And he confronted the greatest pillars in the church with the reality that they were going back to Judaism, Judaism without the Messiah. They were going back to circumcision. James, Peter, and John were drifting. And Barnabas even ran into that hypocrisy. So the confrontation is that we don't get the cross because we think it's just an entry point to all that we need forever. We think that it's just clearing our case and now we have a ticket to heaven. And most of us in this room would not call ourselves Calvinists, but we live by that principle of Calvinism that once saved, always saved. It's a transaction, it's over. It doesn't matter what I do from this point forth. We don't like the parts of Calvinism that don't make sense, like predestination to hell forever, double predestination, or predestined to heaven. But we, we like that point of once saved, always saved somehow. We need to confront our thinking patterns toward our comforts and realize it's a cross we're to bear, and it's a cross in Christianity, or it's a Christless Christianity. You're going on without Jesus. You've been severed from grace, Paul says in Galatians 5. This isn't a game. It's all about the cross. Is it strapped to your shoulder daily? How do we even know that if it's strapped to our shoulder when we're so enamored with the success-driven mindset of our culture? Oh, we need to shake it off. We need to violently plea with our soul to rise up to God alone in prayer and stay away from that philosophy of comfort and ease and, oh, you just need to protect yourself from this and from that and live radically abandoned to the cross. Oh, it comes out in saying that we're not evangelists. Oh, I just don't have that gift. No, you just are holding on to your reputation. You are holding on tight and protecting yourself. Since when could a man on a cross ever hold on to his reputation? He's watching the world pass on. The world's watching him pass on into another way of living. Or it's not an exchange life. And you're just living humanistic form of Christianity, of principles, of gain, of selfishness, where the cross is not at the center, but you are. Oh, church, wake up. We cannot do this. Or perish. The book of Hebrews. Don't go back to the law. Don't drift. Your anchor's losing hold. You're going to hit shipwreck in your faith. Shipwreck to me means shipwreck. It's not just losing reward. Unless, again, you're a Calvinist. And you believe once saved, always saved. Everything's by God, even your sanctification. Getting holy. It's all about God. It doesn't depend on me at all. Well, then what does it mean? What does Scripture say? Why so many warnings? Why Hebrews? Why the book of Hebrews? Warning in chapter 2, verse 1. Warning in chapter 3, verse 12. Warning in chapter 4, verse 1. Warning in chapter 10, verse 26. Warning in chapter 12, verse 15. Why the warnings to Christians? 
If it's just about reward. If it's not about also eternal security of staying under the cross. The Son of Man, verse 22, must suffer and be rejected and killed. Son of Man was the returning king on the clouds with glory. This rattled their brains. What do you mean the, the Son of Man, the returning king forever, is going to die? What do you mean? What does that mean for our reputation as Israelites? Is what they're asking. And what we ask is, what does that mean for our reputation as believers? What does that mean? Does that mean I have to suffer a loss of my reputation to the world? Absolutely it does. Sign, done. It has to. It has to. What do we think we're signing up for? Who do we think we're following? Do we know him? Do we see him for who he is? How blind are God's own professed followers of himself? Come after me is what Jesus says. This kind of lifestyle can only be maintained in a place of deep, connected prayer. A culture of prayer cannot be maintained an ounce aside from a culture of the cross. And the culture of the cross is the only thing that paves the way for a true culture of prayer. I commend Bethany Church for the pursuit of a culture of prayer. I think it's the best thing in the world that you could consider but it's going to take each one of you taking serious the call of the cross and the call of prayer as a believer. Prayer and cross, that's our identity. That's our reputation. A people that are desperate, that need the cross, therefore pray. That is the only hope of representing Christ. Forever, progressively maturing, maintaining that witness, Staying in an overcoming state to the point where we overcome a great reward in the end is if we embrace the cross and embrace prayer. And because we embrace prayer, we embrace the cross, therefore embrace prayer. We need a desperate shift in our thinking into the simplicity of devotion to Jesus through the cross and through prayer like he did before the Father. What do we think? That Jesus wanted to give us a parade? Jesus is our example of precisely how we're to follow. Now understand, he's not just our example, he's our indwelling Christ. We're being conformed to his very image. But he's our example specifically, exactly the pattern that we're to follow. That's why Paul said, I, the chief of sinners, have been able to suffer the most to be an example to all who would follow after Christ Jesus. Our call is to walk in step with the Messiah in our lifestyle. He showed, as man, how to perfectly submit to the Father, and he showed, as God, how to perfectly, perfectly become a man. And that's our excuseless Messiah. Now that he is who he is, we have no excuse. We can't call ourselves mere human, like Paul confronts in 1 Corinthians 3. All centered around the cross in Corinth, confronting Gnosticism and intellectualism and sensualism. He's saying to them, you can't think that way anymore, like mere men. The world belongs to you, the age to come. If you're living that way, then why are you doing a pecking order of reputation and name dropping on Paul, Apollos, and Peter 
or I really follow Christ. Why are you doing that? Because you don't have a grid for the day of the Lord, the cross and the utter mercy of God that you deserved hell, but He gave you mercy. So you're moving away from the cross into a pecking order, into intellectualism, into comfort, into indulgence, anything but the cross on your back. Church, this is our call in this hour. Jesus lived it with prayer and becoming obedient to the point of death. And our obedience is to the point of our own death, as it says in Acts 20, 24, in Revelation 12, 10. They did not shrink back to the point of death. That's reputation going by the wayside because of the cross. So come after me, says Jesus. The come after me in Luke 9.23 is in the present infinitive form of the Greek tense. In other words, it's a continual, repeated reality. It's an organic following in a dynamic, continual posture before the Lord. If you want to keep on keeping on and following me until the end and overcome, this is the ticket. You must deny yourself. So come after me. It's the idea of like, if you're playing baseball, a little analogy here, and you hit the ball into the corner to the point where the outfielder can't get to it in time, and he has to kind of regather where it's going to bounce, and there's a couple places on the wall, and he's trying to get his glove in the right place or let it hit his chest and catch it off the wall, carom and throw it in, if you're not running, I don't care where you hit that ball, you're not going anywhere. But if you hit the ball in the corner, and you hit out of the gate as fast as you can around the bases, you probably get a triple at least if it's that much of a challenge for the outfielder to get the ball. This is the reality of following Jesus. We can say that we're following Jesus, but our life denies it. We can say we've given our life to him and we're quote-unquote saved. But until we run like it's a race and we're the only one that can get a prize, we don't know if we have perseverance of the saints. We don't know if we're going to endure to the end. We don't even know if we're going to be qualified for the prize in the end. The challenge is, will you run like you're the only one that matters to run? Like you're the only one who can get the prize? That's what it is to take up the cross. So, our mere sentiment toward the cross is not okay. We can't imagine a mere knowledge of the cross will, with an entire lack of application is okay. You know, that's what James was confronting on being doers of the word. He knew about the, the mindset of the Jews to be proud and to be smart and argue about things. That's why he said be slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to listen, receive the word and get meekness from it. And then you'll actually live the word instead of just talking about it. That's what James was saying in his first chapter. That's what we could say to America. Quit gathering all these sermon notes because they're information and you keep them on your shelf and, and you're, not, you're not applying more than 2% of it. It's too simple. Go back to the cross. It's not about you. Your life is completely nailed to the cross. So, for that, number two, of that point of verse 23. Deny yourself daily. Jesus would say, do what I did. He came in Matthew 20, 28 to give his life a ransom. Not to serve, but to be served. Or not to be served, but to serve. To give his life a ransom for all. Jesus says, do what I did. Daily. 
daily reconsider because it's going to be hard for you because you don't pray because you don't know how desperate you are every day you need to remind yourself and go deeper and deeper and deeper into the reality of how much you need me disown yourself that's the idea of denying yourself disown I'm done with what I used to be completely and I'm entirely living now for him it's a bondservant my rights, my name, my reputation, my provision are all wrapped up in him. I am an utter slave, yet free in love, yet enslaved to righteousness. I don't want anything else. This is what it is to take up the cross. So Philippians 2, verse 3 to 8, this is what is very clearly unpacked. This reality of reputation only coming through the cross. It's good to have a good reputation among unbelievers, but that reputation can't be minus the cross. It, it, in essence, the only way to have any kind of reputation is through the cross or its filthy rags coming from your own righteousness or morals or strength. And only when you are desperately depending on God for your resurrection in the end, there's no saving face. That's what Paul said when he came into Corinth. I didn't come with persuasive words, but I felt like I was crucified on a cross, and I wasn't ready to preach. Or I, I went out there to preach. I stuck my neck out there, and what do you know? The demonstration of the Spirit and power, the signs of the age to come were multiplied, and therefore people turned to Christ. It wasn't because of the foolish message of the cross that I preached. It's because there was power in my weakness. My literal strung up to the cross reality. That's where witnessing comes in. That's why people don't witness on the streets or to their co-workers is because they're holding on to the reputation. They're stepping off the cross or putting it under their desk at work for a little while and waiting till the proper time, more respectable, outside of your hours. You don't want to disrupt the place, right? You want to wait until people are warmed up to give them the gospel. Since when are sinners warmed up to the killing of their flesh and the death of their old ways? Why does the gospel not work like that? That God has a wonderful plan for you because it wasn't intended for them in that scripture. It's intended for Israel coming out of exile. When will the church come out of exile in the gospel and preach the truth that it's righteousness that we need only by repentance and faith by the cross? When will the church know that each minister has the witness because the witnesser lives inside of them and if they just open their mouth, feel like a fool, the power of God would break in and somebody gets saved. Not because you're really good and polished and practiced from a good seminar on evangelism, but because Jesus, the Messiah, lives in you and you know that the cross is the only way. That's it. This is the call of the gospel. So Philippians 2, verse 3 through 8. Ramping down here. Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfishness. Ouch. Actually, I'm going to read it in the King James because it actually says reputation. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, how is that possible, but through the cross, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Am I supposed to be a doormat? Yes. It doesn't make sense. Ouch, that hurts. Yes, we are. Doesn't mean you're not to have a dignity. It means that you already know your dignity, that so no matter who steps on you like a doormat, it doesn't matter. You've embraced the cross. 
Have you? Do you feel the slivers in your hand every day? That's what prayer prepares us for, to feel the slivers in your hand like this cross is for real, it's on my back. So when people walk on me, my dignity is in God. I'm not just going to have a pity party and roll over. I'm going to go out rejoicing that I got a little bit of a ripple effect of persecution compared to what Acts was with the flogging on the back and they went out saying they suffered for the name. So there's a little ripple in the water. There's just the beginning of a little bit of opposition because you're considering what it really means to carry the cross. Church, we haven't gone all the way. The king's not here yet. The kingdom's not here at all. Your reputation is all in your king when he comes as king. If he's not ruling now, why are you? If he's still a priest in prayer, then why aren't you in prayer? If he's praying that you be sanctified to the uttermost, then what are you doing to join his prayer? It's really all about prayer. And prayer is in the kind that connects with your depravity, connects with his righteousness, connects with his joy, connects with only him, because your life is spent on the cross. That's it. That's prayer. And out of that comes intercession and groanings and and calling forth things that you want to see happen and asking and knocking and waiting and weeping and wailing and growing and yearning and being conformed to his image through prayer like Romans 8's context. That's what it's about because there's an age to come. So we surrender our liberty. That's the reality. See, we get this whole concept of I am free to do what I want. I can drink wine if I want. Really, you can't. Not saying you can't drink wine. Get me right here. What I'm saying is, you live so radically abandoned to the cross that your liberty is not your own. Your liberty, liberty is determined by sacrifice, by considering others, by wanting others saved, by not being so wrapped up in your own decision that you have to have because it's your own free will. How do we consider this issue of liberty? If we're a bondservant, then what does liberty look like? Look what Paul says a couple times in Galatians. Galatians 1.10. He says, For I am, now, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I'd not be a bondservant of Christ. Next verse, 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And even more confronting, 1 Corinthians 10. It's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Give no offense either to the Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I am also please all men in all things. What a paradox. Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many that they may be saved. So we seek our neighbor's good above our own, that he wouldn't stumble. We really consider and we weigh out our decisions in light of the people around us, and we actually start thinking about others above ourselves so that we consider, I wonder if this person who's had an addiction to gambling would mind if I drop a couple slots here while we're by this place that has it conveniently located. I wonder if my drinking of wine has a hard pressure on a person that's still overcoming that addiction. I wonder, you fill in the blank, how about this one, a two-piece swimming suit? Oh, it's my culture. But what about the challenge of the eyes of men? 
Where's the love? Or is it more about your reputation, your curves? Is it more of the reputation, I can enjoy a glass of wine? Is it more about your reputation, you fill in the blank? Or are you living in love like we all say it's about, which is utter sacrifice, others-orientated? So the challenge is for us, going on in 1 Corinthians 10, actually we just read it all, never mind. There was a couple verses at the end of 1 Corinthians, but I didn't put them on my notes. Number three, take up your cross daily. Take care, brethren. Hebrews 3. Connect this reality of taking up your cross and putting your depravity at bay and, and staying in righteousness. Listen to this. Hebrews 3, 12, 14. Take care, brothers, that there not be in one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, how to spur, kick each other. That's what the word is, to spur one another on, to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of the Lord. So daily, unselfish love in our relationships. It's the radical application of the cross. This is not only difficult, but dangerous. It's difficult daily because those of closest proximity, your time spent, your wife, your husband, your kids, your church, your co-workers, that's the hardest place to apply the cross. And we're really good at flattering and letting love be with hypocrisy in that area. We're really hiding our hypocrisy. We're hiding our motives of not truly loving that person. It's the hardest thing. The hardest place is to live with somebody and see all sides of them and still embrace the cross and not be gossiping or critical or anything that would be in the, not be anything that would not be in the mind of Jesus even when he was dying on the cross is our call as a believer. Even when he was dying. This is our call to be conformed to that. It's painful. It's dangerous because What's lived is also the message that you proclaim to the enemies of the cross. Their God is their belly. They live for this day. You live for that day. If you really are, you'll have to tell people because you'll know the urgency of knowing the reality of that day and how you lined your life up so radically with that day that it's, un, it's, it's known clearly, it's uncovered who you are. Therefore, you have to put words to what you're living like. You have to. So that's the witness of a Christian. Is if you're living it, you have to talk about it. How does it work that you work for a business and you go out and mums the word all day among people that could be great clients? And you, you don't, you'd hold back? Yeah, right. Especially in this economy. How about the Christian economy? Endless grace through the cross. But are you willing, willing to pay the price and feel the pain? It's dangerous. Die daily, Paul said. I risk my life with beasts. Paul and Barnabas risked their lives for the gospel. Overcome by the blood of the Lamb, not in the word of your testimony, not shrinking back at death. Follow me. It's a present imperative. Continuous repeat of implication. On into the future. Leaving the old pattern. Explaining what he meant by deny yourself. He says, keep going in verse 24. He says, if you're ashamed of me and my words when I come, I'll be ashamed of you. If you've held on to your reputation... You won't have one with me when I return. 
Verse 25, a rhetorical question, not so rhetorical when we don't apply the cross. What was the question in verse 25? The question in verse 25 was Luke 9, 25. Closing out here. Africans have perseverance, don't they? I'm from Florida. I'm a little more conditioned. I could go for another hour, but some of you probably have another half hour in you at the best. We won't do anything more than a few minutes. But here we go in Luke 9 again, verse 25. What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Boy, is that a challenging word. Because when we think about losing ourself, I mean, that's, that's really radical. You ever thought about that? Like, gain the whole world. What's the world? What does it mean? Well, John unpacks it in 1 John 2. It's the lust of the eyes, the flesh, and the pride of life, which is the boastful pride of what we have and do. Our reputation, our resources, our status, our job, our clothing, our food that we eat, the friends that we choose, the car that we drive, the way that we walk, how we think about ourselves, all day long we're confronted with the challenge of are you going to choose the pride of life or are you going to choose the cross? Step by step, choice by choice, moment by moment, all the time, the cross must be applied very specifically, succinctly, clearly, or you're starting to drift from your faith. Now that sounds alarmist. Well, we know the good news that God's for us. It's not all about Oh no, this is terrible dread warning. But it is urgent because, not because God's going to run out of mercy and care less. It's because he cares so much. But the problem is, if we really believe how desperate we need to cross, we realize our propensity to drift and utterly deny him and come to a place where we don't have in us the ability to turn back to him. We need to take serious our condition. Yes, his keeping power. Yes, his mercy. Yes, his pursuit of us. But what are you doing with it daily? It's a cross or it's nothing. It's painful. It's dangerous. It's difficult. The way is narrow. It's the only way, the truth, and the life. How about that in the context of of the cross? Ouch! The application of the cross is painful. So don't love the world. Paul says in Galatians 6, oh, read Galatians. Here's what he says in Galatians. Each one examine his own work. Then he'll have, on the judgment day, that's what it clearly is in the scripture, reason for boasting. Otherwise, we can boast but not boast somehow. But the boasting is about the day to come, as you see, the day of the Lord. As as you read the context, it says, each one will bear his own load. The one who's taught the word should share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he'll reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit eternal life. Let, not, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we'll reap if we don't grow weary. He doesn't say don't grow weak. He says don't grow weary in your weakness. Yeah, weak. Feel like you can't hang on, but keep hanging on. Keep surrendering. To the cross so you don't grow weary and give up so then while we have opportunity let us do good to all people see while we have opportunity because there's a day coming where each one will be judged and you'll only have boasting in what you did because of christ because he's going to honor those who have lived for him 
only him. And it's all going to be filtered through the cross or it's wood, hay, and stubble. It's all about motives that are selfless and love and glory of God. So therefore, especially to the household of faith, of the cross, the ones that represent my name, build them up, see them grow, see them endure. Then the world will see that you love me and are my disciples. That's the witness to the world. That's why it's a priority for your brother, your sister in Christ, that you exhort, you challenge when they're in sin, but always look into yourself, not boasting of your own righteousness. These are the challenges laid out. But may it never be, Paul says, in verse 14, that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world's been crucified to me. I'm hanging here. Bye-bye, world. I can't do anything about it. And the world's looking at me, and they're going, where is he going? He's done. He must be dying. He must be killing himself. He must be wasting his life. What a stupid way to live. So closed-minded. Has no idea what life is really all about. He's got to enjoy himself. He's taking his religion too serious. Wow, let him go. And the Christian on the other side is going, status, reputation, pride. I'm dying now and I want to take as many as you with me to follow me in the same way because this is the only way. This is the only way of freedom is that you die. This is the reality. And then Paul says that in light of the boasting of the circumcision before. They like to boast in people's performance and James called this friendship with the world or adultery. So finally, verse 26. When he comes in his glory, the day of the Lord, our reputation on that day will be very clear, revealed by fire in 1 Corinthians 3. Who we are, what we've been, what we've done, what our motives have really been, God knows my heart mantra, all that kind of stuff will be before the eyes of fire that doesn't miss a thing, good or bad. Therefore, are you living like you're before that throne now to have confidence in that day? That's the challenge, and only the cross will bring you there to the throne of grace. So, the day of the Lord, right now, we are pilgrims. We are bondservants. We are a bride-to-be. We are sons who are maturing. We are not there yet. Do not pass go. Do not cl- collect $200. Do not put your gown and cap on. Go all the way or don't go at all. That's the call of Christianity. Go all the way faithful to the end or don't go there at all. Oh, it's, it's terrifying to consider how much delusion there is in the church. But we embrace this pilgrim call. Our call is to bear His name, not ours. His reputation. The name Christian was an offscoring and mockery in the beginning. It was in Antioch where they started calling them Christians in a mocking way in the big Gentile church. Gentiles um, in Agrippa said, oh, you're going to convince me to be a Christian, Paul, are you? And Paul was preaching before him. And then Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, know that you're entrusting your soul to a faithful Creator and doing good even though you're being wrong. So being a Christian, that's the name. The disciples were flogged, and they went out and rejoiced while bleeding and scar tissue is hanging off their back from getting flogged. And they said this, we rejoice because we suffer shame for the name par excellence, the name ultimate, the name above all, the reputation of Jesus who's exalted now, and I can't get there until I suffer unto death give my whole life faithful unto death, then I'll be exalted with him. But right now, he's been exalted, yet humbly waits as priest for me to join him as his bride, as his son on a throne with a new name, because I'm not having a name, but I'm living dead. I'm living a name that's dead to me, not dead as the church that was confronted in Revelation. So I can have a new name in that day, a new reputation made and forged through affliction, trial, service, giving myself to others, 
putting that cross to my back every day and everything I do, that I would be conformed to the image of the Son of God who went so low as God. Did we mention that He's God? And He went low. So finally, the final finally, reconsider the call of the cross. We don't know it. We haven't graduated. We haven't even begun. The reason that we have so much trouble as Christians in the West is that we try to figure out the cross instead of strapping it to our shoulder. We think that it was for the first century, or we think it's for China, but somehow we didn't connect the dots that why is the church so tepid and so unwitnessing and so non-sacrificial overall. If, I mean, I'm not downing what they do in the West. It's because we believe that somehow we have a pass from Philippians 1.29 that has been granted unto you to believe and suffer for Jesus' name. We think that it's for China. We think it's for the first century. We don't think it's for now. But the day of the Lord is at hand and drawing near. It's a day of gloom and thick darkness. It's a great and a terrible day. It's a day of recompense. It's a day of drawing lines for the church that judgment will come first. It's a day of where are you at? Are you with me or are you not? So the challenge is to deny or disown yourself. To take up your cross daily. To follow Him without growing weary. I encourage you all as you go out of this place today to read Galatians 6. Read the whole book of Galatians if you can as a letter without the chapters and the verses in it. That helps a lot. It's a letter. It's one thinking pattern through the whole thing in essence. But chapter 6 is so much about reputation. We hit a lot of it today. Reputation, the day of the Lord, suffering of the cross, the mercy of God, aligning ourselves with God, violently breaking away from anything of respectability, outward show in the flesh, promoting ourselves as Christians, and really embracing the cross. So I just want to ask you guys to uh, bow your heads or come forward or whatever it looks like for you. I want to um, invite the band if they're going to come yet. It's 1130 right now. Um, but I just really want you to be able to take time to really meditate on this. As we know, uh, a meditating on the cross, when, the more we meditate on the cross, the more we're going to see what it really is, the more we're really going to want to embrace it and see it lived out in our life. Because hearing these truths in your ear today, it caused some disruption. It caused some pain. It caused some anger. It caused some fear. It caused some expectation. It caused some encouragement for some. It caused the whole mix of things in this room. I don't expect that every one of you in this room would hate what I said or love what I said. I expect that there's all kinds of mixes and some of you don't even know what you're feeling right now. So my challenge is, is to not try to figure out what it is, but realize it's the cross. It's a stumbling block. It makes us show that we don't have anything so that we can live to have everything like 1 Corinthians 3 says, in the age to come. So I just want to challenge you to let God tenderize your heart right now and, and let that pain, that affliction that you may feel in your thoughts and in your heart, do its work in you. It's the work of the cross of Jesus. So Father, in the name of Jesus, grace, grace, grace to this people. Grace, divine empowerment, the ability to spend your life because of the cross. Oh God, grace, power in weakness, perseverance to push through the sludge that comes against our hearts, 
perseverance to correct, to convict, to confront the depravity in our own heart, the motives that we excuse, the words that we think are okay to say to our coworkers, to our spouse, the thoughts that we let lodge within us, considering what someone's really all about when we don't know them enough. Oh God, whatever references to the love, to the cross, to thinking of others, to carrying that cross in reality, minister to hearts right now, Lord. Bring that affliction that brings joy and life. Bring the wounding that brings healing. Bring the correction that builds up to an eternal inheritance in the age to come. Build up all that lasts in jewels and gold in this place. And whatever is of wood, hay, stubble, confront, singe, that today things will be cut off that will lead to a pattern of wood, hay, stubble laid up in the age to come. Oh God, do it in this hour, in this moment. Go to hearts. Cut with your word that cuts to soul, spirit, motive, intention. With your eyes that look on us through your word. You, the word of God, you look on us. You call us to know we have a priest who's passed through the heavens. So now when we let the word cut us, we can come before you with a naked, bare, unhiding, bearing our weakness, our depravity, and let your eyes look on us and draw us into the place where you're seated in the heavenlies before your throne, finding grace and mercy to help in the point of contention, in the point of temptation, in the point of the temptation to be comfortable, to coast, to give up, to let our thinking pattern drift into humanistic philosophy. Oh God, spare your church. Purify our minds, our hearts, that we would know how to contend earnestly for the one faith, to stand firmly on the rock, to lay the cross on our shoulder, to stand firm and wrestle against all that would pull us away from the hope and the calling of the age to come. The day of the Lord, we live for your eyes. We live to please you alone. Do it in this people, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to come and just respond to this message and pray, the altars are open. Come anytime. Uh, Dave will lead us in a time of worship.